dong merrily on high and welcome to a festive episode of Fully Scored. In this month's instalment we're sprinkling everything with a light dusting of festivity, not the band piece. Our first guest today is used to being the fairy on top of the tree, in brass band scoring terms anyway, as a soprano cornet player of the International Staff Band. I'm of course talking about the legendary Gary Fountain. After we hear from Gary, Nick Simmons-Smith is going to be the metaphorical reindeer guiding the sleigh of listeners' ears through the musical landscape of Morley Calvert's The Festive Season for this month's analysis. Finally, getting to observe the spectacular Christmas lights on the palm trees of Arid Island is Matthew Miles, bandmaster of Bromley Temple Band. Now, first of all, let's hear what's flowing from the fountain. Gary, thank you so much for joining us on Fully Scored. It's a real privilege to have you here. Thank you very much for having me, yes. Um, probably have been a reluctant person to come on it, but you've got me in the end, so... <laughs> Absolutely. And it's great that you can join us on our festive Christmas episode to finish off the year. So I've got a few questions to get to know you a little bit better. And my first one is uh, delving back a little bit into history. When did you first pick up a brass instrument? Well, I was a bit of a late developer, really, Matthew. Um, I was 11 when I first started playing. Um, Brass was in my family. My dad was a brass player, but I never really took to it that early on. Uh, I was 11. Someone encouraged me to have a go in the YP band at Leicester Castle. So that was my first start on a cornet. And is there anyone that was a key influence on you and your sort of development as a player in those early years? Yes, I mentioned Leicester Castle. Uh, Les Piper, who was the bandmaster at Leicester Castle Court, which is now Leicester South, um, he was a trombone player, but he was my first real teacher, really. Um, So I really looked up to Les. Um, Charlie Dove was a cornet player from Stapleford, um, who I used to travel up the uh, M1 for lessons once every two weeks with Charlie. Uh, Michael Barrett, who was the principal cornet at Kettering Citadel for many a year, um, a real player I aspired to be, really. He, he got everything, really, the sound, such a consistent player, um, real role model. Um, Don Manning, who was the bandmaster at Kettering, a real calming man and um, always wanted the band to play within its capabilities, never trying too hard and always wanted to keep it musical. And John Berriman who was the uh, conductor of the Gus Band when I played with them. A true musician and a real gentleman. Um, Really inspiring sort of guy. But a special mention I'd like to make of Cliff Goodger, who was a tenor horn player at Leicester Castle, who really encouraged me from the beginning, and still does now. Um, We used to go down the Salvation Army Hall nearly four times a week playing the senior band stuff. Um, And it wasn't good to start with, but uh, we got there in the end. But he was there for me in those um, in, uh, formative years, really. Cliff Goodger, yeah. Amazing. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Yes. Really great to hear those influences and people that have impacted your life yes. on the way. Yeah. Now, of course, it doesn't start necessarily when you pick up the cornet that you're getting gigs and playing with the staff band. So no, there's, no, there's a journey no. there. Okay. Um, can you tell us about a few of the playing experiences that you had as you were developing as yes, a player? Yeah. Um, my dad was very keen for me to um, join the National Youth Brass Band of Great Britain. 
it was something I probably was reluctant to do. Uh, I'm not that competitive sort of natured person. Uh, but I went along, I did several courses with the National Youth Brass Band. Um, I also became uh, a founder member of the Young Ambassadors Band of Great Britain, which was a break-off from the National Youth. We went on tour to Holland and places like, like that. Um, and I was a product for the Leicestershire Schools Music Service initially. It had a fantastic music service, so that's probably where my, my uh, initial um, learning happened. Um, don't know what it's a highlight, but I played a solo of Someone Cares live on Radio Leicester, nice. which was quite a big thing to do at my age. Yeah. Um, I used to go to East Midlands uh, Music Schools, an autumn division, uh, where I got to know Trevor Davis and Ray Bowes, who were instructors there. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing some of those experiences that you've had there. So let's fast forward a few years. Uh, and in 1990, uh, you joined the International Staff Band and were for many years the assistant principal cornet to David Dawes. What are some of your first memories of joining the band? Well, initially I was on fifth man down on Solo Cornet under Robert Redhead. Um, what actually happened, I was on holiday in St Ives with a group from Hendon. Nice. And I was fielding uh, in the boundary with Steve Cobb on a, a game of cricket on the beach. And it was getting a bit boring and we ended up just standing there talking. And he mentioned there was a vacancy for a Solo Cornet player in the staff band. And basically almost dictated a letter for me to send in. So that's how I got in the band on Fifth Man Down. Um, I remember my first weekend was at Hinkley, which is near to Leicester, so my friends and family were there to support. I remember playing Cornet Cascade, and it was the first time I'd been told to learn a part and stand in front and produce this wonderful Cornet uh, feature. So that was quite, um, quite difficult to cope with initially, but I did it. Um, as Steve Cobb took over from the uh, Robert Redhead's reign, I was moved to second man, man down to Dave. Um, we all know about Dave, really what a great player. Somewhat of a shock, and although being a thrill was quite a responsibility, it didn't really want to spoil what the good work Dave was doing. Um, so I was very good at making sure the mutes were tidy and the pad was in order and that sort of thing. Um, but I remember playing in the first rehearsal um, when we were together, and we played Takata, the work we'd hinted Takata, and we got to the middle movement and uh, with the cornet feature and the small band. And it seems as if I could sense Dave's every move and tried really hard to blend with, without doubt, he's one of the best cornet players and sounds we've ever heard. So I learned an awful a lot from Dave, phrasing, lyrical playing, playing efficiently, but always tastefully. Nice. Okay, yeah. Amazing. And I'd love to know, are you a better cornet player or cricket player from that? <laughs> <laughs> Probably cricket, actually, but yeah, yeah. Move on, Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do, swiftly. <laughs> so you mentioned a few highlights there from your time on Solo Cornet, but are there any other occasions or events where you had to really pinch yourself to think, oh, oh yes, yeah, yeah. I've been very fortunate, really. Um, I've been in the band quite a long time, and... Um, I remember the Brass Spectacular in Toronto. It was the ISB, New York staff band, Canadian staff band, Chicago staff band. Um, what a thrill that was. Um, I've done tours of Canada, America, Australia. I remember doing a three and a half week tour of Australia, New Zealand and Japan. Um, distinctly remember playing in a huge concert hall in Japan where we were allowed to play, but there could be no spoken words. And for me, this showed the power of music. And when we played, played any meditative piece, there was a hush and no one clapped. So you never know what good you were doing there. Mm. Uh, the obvious highlight was ISB 120, which was a very special event, probably never to be repeated. Packed Royal Albert Hall, showing brass bands, were still appreciated in, in the Salvation Army. 
and obviously Boundless. Uh, when we finish with a march celebration to a packed hall, rising and singing and waving flags, we'll keep the old flag flying, flying around the world. I must admit there was a lump in my throat and I was, was very proud to be a Salvationist at that point. Amazing. Now, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I believe there's a bit of a brass band, or certainly Salvation Army brass band mythology, around the original manuscripts recording, particularly Isaiah 40. Do you want to tell us that story? No, not really, no. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, remember, I remember the Friday night um, session in, in the recording, and um, Sarah Dawes, David's uh, wife at the time, was due to give birth, and um, any time... It really was any time. And I remember sitting the Friday night recording thinking, we haven't got Isaiah 40 done yet, and we haven't got parts of the organ symphony done yet, and I'm thinking, I hope nothing happens overnight. And sure enough, I think it was about 6.30 in the morning, I was staying in a hotel, I got a phone call from Steve to say that um, Sarah Dawes has gone into labour, and, um, and I sort of cut him short and said, so do you want me to go and sit in the hospital with her so, <laughs> to enable Dave to come to the rehearsal? Um, he said, no. He, uh, he said, um, I want you to sit on the end. And I suppose, I suppose it's one of those moments where you have to dig deep and do what... I've never played the solos in the pieces before. There was never any need to. Um, probably that's a lesson for people. <laughs> if you are second man down, always look at the solos. Um, and it was, yeah, it was quite a tough thing to do, but I did it and couldn't wait for Dave to come back the next week. So, yeah. <laughs> an, an amazing recording as well. Sounds well, absolutely you, well. <laughs> So, clearly you are a brave man, and uh, in 2005 you became the staff band's soprano cornet player, a role that you still hold now, so mm. you must be doing a decent job to do that. <laughs> uh, well. when, when did you first start to dabble in the dark art of soprano cornet playing? Well, I used to do it at the music schools. I was one of the sergeants, and we had two fantastic cornet players in Anna Losh and Morris Patterson. Um, it was very much one week every year that I did it. Probably what happened then, my local contested band, Gus, ran me to see if I'd be prepared to join on soprano. So at one stage, I was actually going Monday nights to Gus practice, Tuesday nights to Kettering Citadel Band's practice, ISB on a Wednesday, Thursday back at Gus, and then probably at least one of the bands was out on the Saturday. So I had a lip like steel, really. I could play anything, really, at that point. Um, probably didn't have much of a social life, but, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, who needs one? Who when needs one? When, got, when you got bad, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. um, did that for a few years, and then Steve approached me to join the band on soprano, because at that point I was playing B-flat. I've had to pinch myself a couple of times when I'm, I'm playing. Um, I distinctly remember my first bandmaster's council at the Royal Albert Hall, and bear in mind that we'd agree, Matthew, we're not really pro players as such. I know you, yourself, you do some pro work, but I certainly don't. And, you know, you sat there on the Royal Albert Hall, and at those times, the Bandmasters Council, it was a packed hall, and there's cameras flying around, and there's mics next year. And the piece we had to play was St Magnus, where it started with myself and Phil Cobb right at the beginning. And I, th I remember thinking, I thought I'd left contesting, I didn't enjoy contesting, and, I, OK, no-one was judging it, but I felt really under pressure, didn't want to mess it up at the beginning. I'm a reluctant soloist. I've had the privilege of playing solos with the band. Although reluctant soloist, I do admit to feeling quite proud of myself when I finished it, but equally couldn't wait to sit back down in the band and carry on with the programme. It really doesn't float my boat. Um, I do remember recording my first solo with the band, and Brian Hilson, the producer at the time, seeing I was quite nervous about it, just came up quietly and said, just do what you normally do and relax. Best things he could have said, really, because um, 
difficult to do, but I, I did it. And are you more nervous for this recording or that, that recording that you got to about? <laughs> yeah, this one. <laughs> Rather recording my hand, yeah. <laughs> so you said that you had to pinch yourself. Is that your technique for getting high notes? High notes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> On a more serious note, though, clearly Soprano Corny is a very demanding and exposed part in the band. How do you deal with any nerves that you might face, like you just mentioned? Yeah, yeah. I, I... Nerves and performance anxiety, I think, have plagued me for most of my playing career and I uh, have to say, to some extent, taken away the enjoyment of music making for me. I remember a conductor at Gus saying prior to a contest, just do what you have done in rehearsal, don't try and push harder or faster than you have done. I'd apply this to performance under pressure. If you have done the preparation, don't let your head mess it up for you. Always take good breaths and keep a level head. Now, that's all great saying that. Putting that into practice is another thing. But I do find it quite difficult, if I was honest. And I wouldn't say it's got easier over the years. Really? No, I, I find it quite hard really to cope with it. Which is, why do I play Soprano? I know what you're thinking <laughs> about, you. <laughs> is there any particular occasion that you really feel that you are most on edge for a concert? Or do you feel the same for everything? Once I've got a couple of pieces under my belt, I start to feel more confident. I have to say, once we get after the interval and come back, I'm sort of feel as if I'm in the groove then and can face most things, I think, at that point. The biggest thing for a weekend, I find, and uh, you've played soprano as well, Matthew, um, is facing the Sunday morning after the big blow Saturday night. Um, I'm a person that every time I get my instrument out, I want to play as well as I can. So it doesn't matter whether there's five people there or 500 people there. Um, so on a Sunday morning, that is the time where you could blow all the good work you've done on the Saturday night. Mm. And it's a special moment. I'll come on to that in a minute. It's a special moment Sunday mornings. So that's always in the back of my mind. So that's mm. probably where I feel sometimes the most pressure. Oh, that's so, really yeah, interesting yeah. to hear. Yeah. And uh, some very wise words that you've spoken so far, almost like you could be a parapsetic <laughs> teacher, <laughs> which indeed like you it, are. I like it, very good. <laughs> Over in Northamptonshire, do you enjoy teaching? Yes, I've been in uh, the Northamptonshire Music and Performing Arts Trust for 19 years now, and it's fair to say it's probably one of the leading hubs in the country for, for its music. Um, I probably joined, I used to be in sales, in technical sales, selling robotic systems, um, but my heart was always in music, and I got a chance to do some private teaching for the head of music service who had a, a car accident. So I used to do my normal day, uh, sales day, and then go off and do a couple of hours teaching on a Thursday evening. And I got a real uh, buzz uh, out of it. So when there was a vacancy, I made it known I was interested and I was fortunate to get the job. I've always tried to go in there um, as a way of paying back what people had done for me, um, which, I wasn't a role model student, but someone persevered with me. So I tried to have that in the back of my mind all the while. Putting that teaching hat on, you can take off your cap now. Uh, have you got any tips for any aspiring brass players that are listening to this? Yes, I think we've just touched on, on the practice thing. Mm. I think the thing I get thrown, probably yourself, I get thrown at me all the while, is oh, I haven't got time. I don't truly believe that some of the primary school kids have got that much homework to do, so <laughs> I think they can find time. I try and sort of work on the basis that, and this applies to adults as well, um, 15 minutes of scheduled and methodical playing is better than tootling for an hour. I'd recommend to build stamina, um, scales, slowing of scales, uh, to help the range, the expansion of your range. Um, and the other thing is start difficult passages slow and deliberate and then speed them up. There's no shame in that. 
So do your work, then, then it's not so daunting when you see that bar. Yeah. Amazing. And even more specifically, I guess we may have a few Soprano Corner players listening to this episode. Have you, oh, seen you, yes. have you <laughs> yeah. got any advice for the Soprano Corner? Yes, I was asked to do an article on this um, for the Salvation Army some years ago. And it really made me stop and think uh, what people have, have taught me and also what I've learned by playing. Um, I think the best things uh, for soprano to, to concentrate on is quality of sound and note production. And the note production is a big one, I think, like I was just saying on Sunday mornings, learn to come in quietly and be confident that the note will come. So yes, sound quality, note production in all the dynamics, because sometimes you've got to give it. Uh, maintain a good level of technique. It's easy to, um, oh, the solo corners have got that bit. I don't need to play that. I, I do tend to subscribe to this bit about I'm part of the Cornet team. Therefore, part of the job is to uh, take the pressure off the front row at times on the high stuff. And apart from any ridiculously low parts where you know you're going to be slightly out of tune, most of the time I play all what's on the copy. Um, I think pacing yourself in a concert be aware it's a marathon not a sprint avoid too shallow a mouthpiece some people go for the easy fix oh just put a shallow mouthpiece and I'll be able to scream all sorts out I tend to think of the percentage game as most of the time it's to, to, to be sweet and occasionally top C or, t or D on a Saturday night but the majority of the time you're not expected to be playing right up there so if you have to have a deeper mouthpiece but work that bit harder to do that I'd, I'd rather go for that there are times I wish I'd got another one under my seat, and, <laughs> if I was honest, but I've, I've stuck with the one I play, and that, that's, that's what I do, yeah. Amazing. Thank you for those little nuggets. Yeah, well, I, there. Really, I can really help you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure that many listeners may know that your sons, James and Thomas, are two of the finest trumpet players <laughs> currently working in the UK. James is principal trumpet of the LSO, and Thomas, the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra. You must be really proud, and uh, do you get to hear them play? You know, to answer the first question, yes, I am really proud. I try and play it down a little bit, because we're all proud of our children and what they achieve. Uh, mine, too, happen to be doing something in the public, public eye, I suppose, if you want to call it that. But, um, in fact, I remember James, when he first got the job offer for the RPO, um, he'd only done 13 months at college. And I remember his teacher ringing me, and saying, I want to put James forward for the audition for the RPO. And I'm, me going, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job, Paul, but is this not a bit early? And he said, no, trust me. Now, Paul Kosh is one of the top teachers, so I did trust him. But I remember James getting the job. And when he rang me and said, Dad, I've just been offered the RPO job, um, what do I do? do I, what do I do? I'm still at college. And I remember saying to him, well, what was the aim to go to college? The aim was to be a professional trumpet player. You've now got a chance to be a principal trumpet of the RPO. So it was a bit of a no-brainer, do it. Um, but I remember that I said to him, bring yourself back up on the train and we'll take you out for a meal tonight in Kettering. I'll cover the train fare and all that, you know, as Dad do. Um, and I remember greeting him at the train station in Kettering, giving him a big hug and saying how proud I was of him and how proud his granddad would have been of him. And I remember his words... Dad, all I've done is got a job. And there's a lot of people who've got jobs. And if you stop most people in that train, they probably wouldn't even know what a trumpet is. So, and from then on, I thought, he's a grounded boy. He's got it. He knows how to cope with all this. And, yeah, a lot of people have said to me what a wonderful player is, but what a wonderful grounded lad he is. 
and that has applied to Thomas as well because you know James was very young we noticed James with his music uh, conducting he was about four and you know little kids conduct the band on a Sunday but James seemed to be conducting it properly it was quite eerie and people were noticing this thing and t starting to talk about it and also when we had CDs on in the car he wouldn't just sing the top part he'd start singing a, a, the harmony part so something was not quite right. Um, they both had mouthpieces. Instead of dummies, when we used to change the nappies, we gave them mouthpiece. I know it's bizarre, Matthew. I know, I know. Um, but it seemed to work. They started to buzz. Um, I noticed James's ability. Uh, there was a stage where he was playing um, Repiano Cornet to me when I was in Gus. And I distinctly remember the rehearsal where John Berryman at the time stopped the band and there was a tuning issue and it was to do with the baritones, um, horns, and the basses. And straight away, James leaned to me and went, it's the second horn, the F-sharp's flat. So I just looked at him, I thought, no one likes a smart Alec, just be <laughs> quiet, you know. He said, it is, he said, yeah, okay, James. And about 15 minutes later, with John Berham trying to bring every pot in, we figured out it was the second horn, F-sharp was flat. <laughs> and I suddenly thought, hold on a minute, this lad's got something here. Um, I remember his first national youth course with um, Bram, the late Bram Tovey and um, James was principal cornet and Bram saying to me after the um, concert uh, we were just collecting James's bags and everything from the end of the week and he came up and said are you James's parents I said yeah could you come backstage a minute please and well, what's he gone and done you know <laughs> and I remember Bram saying to me we've got a special talent here um, he said I, I he'd written a piece Bram for the, the week and there was a cornet uh, cadenza. And in the first rehearsal of the day, he just left James to get on with the cadenza and see what, was, what he was going to do. But he said it was completely amazing. He said um, Phil McCann was there in tears and everything. And we, I want to know what you're going to do with this lad and where he's going to go. So he's had a good, he's had a good time as James. Um, he was top man at Gus for, at the age of 16 and then went to Grimethorpe. Um, was principal cornet at the age of 17. As I say, did did uh, just over a year at the Guildhall. Went to the RPO. Just before lockdown, was offered the seat uh, at the LPO. Um, and now he's at the LSO as principal trumpet. Um, so he's, he's done really well with James. Now Thomas, there's a joke about Thomas because uh, with Thomas, there's hardly any videos of Thomas growing up because mainly because video cameras were quite novel initially, so there's loads of James and nothing of Thomas. And sometimes this can be um, put also to the fact he's, as a player, because he's almost developed rather unnoticed as well. Um, at 16, he was the flugel player of Gus, and then the principal cornet. Uh, Thomas did the Royal Academy, and then did a Masters at the Royal College, and was offered the principal trumpet of the BBC Ulster, Orchestra and has recently been appointed principal trumpet of the BBC Philharmonic. Uh, I think probably one of my proudest moments was seeing James hand over the Radio 2 Brass Player of the Year award to his brother, who'd won it the next year. Um, other proud moments, James's solo CD. You know, it was a CD that James wanted to do and the fact it got CD of the Year was a bonus. Uh, you mentioned, do I get a chance to hear them? Yes, I heard James do the Hummel at the Barbican, a packed hall at the Barbican with the LSO, thinking doesn't get any better than this for him, really, does it? So I was a bit emotional, I don't mind admitting. <laughs> and Thomas had done Marla 5 with the Bournemouth Symphony, 
as a guest with them. But probably the biggest one um, was the fact both James and Thomas uh, were chosen to be on the trumpet section of the John Wilson Orchestra at the prom. And uh, I think that's, from what I can gather, a bit of a, a who's who orchestra. So for the, both of the lads to get invited to be in it was a real proud moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. And it's Long really we did. Long we did. No, it's really, really lovely to hear it from you and hear how proud you are. Yeah, thanks. Rightly so. Yeah, thank you. So, back to you now. Um, <laughs> in your playing career, you've had many opportunities playing with some of the finest contest bands in the UK, and I'm sure you'd still be highly sought after by many of the top bands today. So, why is it that you choose to give your time and talents playing in the Salvation Army, both in the staff band as we've spoken about, but also your home corps at Kettering? Yeah, I've, I've, I've been fortunate to play with contest bands. I think I did about five concerts with Black Dyke and a couple of recordings for them. Um, a funny moment uh, as Depping was a, uh, a Dept for Flowers Band under Phil Harper. Again, it was a last minute phone call, so it wasn't a time to say, oh, I'd rather not. So I went ahead and I can sight read okay. Okay, uh, I got through the first half thinking this is going well. And I did notice at the interval that all the chairs and the stands were being taken off the stage. So I said to the solo corner player, the principal corner player, I said, oh, what's happening now? He said, oh, he said the whole second half is choreographed. Oh, dear. And he said, just follow me. And I'd literally, if anybody knows the, um, the Bruce Forsyth show, Generation Game, it was a bit like that, really, because I'd got things uh, stuck on the back of players things <laughs> so he, if he moved to the other side of the stage I was to follow him um, and it literally was a baptism of fire and probably taught me a lesson turn the phone off on a Saturday because you might <laughs> you don't need to put yourself through this again but you know to answer I've been in I've been in the Salvation Army all my life and being in the core band was an obvious thing to do you know I was in the YP band the progressed to the senior band I never envisaged joining the ISB. It was, I was too far away from London at the time, but I, but I was the first appointment made by Robert Redhead. And this is when they, were, they stopped having lunchtime rehearsals. Um, in no way am I knocking the outside bands, the contest bands, but having experienced both camps, I feel that to play music with a purpose and a mission beyond winning a contest is far more rewarding. Uh, my most satisfying, and I've mentioned this, and fulfilling playing is the ministry of the band on the Sunday morning and playing music to aid the worship and allied to the message. Yeah. I think that's a privilege, to be honest. To be, and I get that at my core. I'm privileged to be part of a music group, both at my core and the ISB, that can do this, and I never take it for granted, really, and the fact you're part of it is a, is a big thing. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for your openness. Okay. Honestly, that's really great to hear that. That takes us into our quirky quickfire questions. <laughs> so um, things are going to get a little more. Okay. They'll start off fairly, uh, fairly normal. I think. Yeah, okay. Have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer? Yeah, Les Condon probably. Excellent. Even more specifically, have you got a favourite Salvation Army piece of music? Yeah, I think I thought about this in case you asked me. I've got to say, Celebration, mm. and it happens to be by Les, Les Condon. I think it's the tune at the end, and as I referred to at the O2 Arena, keep the old flag flying, flying around the world. It's a great tune, and I just every time I hear the march, I just think of the O2 Arena being packed and all those people from around the world. I've got another piece that I really like. Ooh, last minute edition. Yes, okay. Um, not by Les Condon. Light of the World. Mm. Um, always gets me. I don't mind admitting, oh Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Every time I play it, and it's a privilege, as you would probably agree, to play it to the level we play it out on a Sunday morning. 
it's it's great, isn't it? And to be part of playing that. But every time we come to that tune, it really gets me. And obviously, an up-to-date one is Lavenham. Um, I remember saying to someone where we went to a call, and I hadn't looked at the screen. I was too busy playing my part. And I said, spoke to someone afterwards, and I said, isn't that Lavenham a lovely piece? And they said, forget the music. Have you seen the words? So every time we then played it, I used to read the words. And yeah... They really are meaningful, isn't it? And going back to our bit about being Salvation Army bandsmen, there is that extra thing, isn't there? Absolutely. Now, those listening won't be able to see this, but as it's our Christmas episode, Gary has dressed as Father Christmas. Yes, oh, 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 yes. Which is a bit weird, so we didn't ask <laughs> you to. But thanks, anyway. He's going out Easter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, on a scale of one to sandpaper, how itchy is that beard? <laughs> Uh, two. <laughs> two, great. <laughs> Have you got a favourite carol? Carol Vorderman. Great. <laughs> no, okay, no, no. Um, yes, Jesus, good above all other. Excellent. If you could eradicate one carol from history, which or who would it be? Rudolph Red No Ray. I don't really like that yeah, one. No, fair first. Enough. Yeah. Fair <laughs> uh, what are the top three components of a Christmas dinner? The turkey. Hmm? The stuffing. Oh, yes. I do like the stuffing. And strange enough, Brussels sprouts. Oh, that's yes. a curveball. Yes. And uh, which part of a Christmas dinner can you cook best? <laughs> the gravy. <laughs> nice. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> if you were the fourth wise man, what gift would you take to the baby Jesus? Oh, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mouthpiece and stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, we will, we'll go with that. <laughs> uh, can you describe your favourite bauble only using one syllable words? Glittery and pretty. That's, no. That's just more than one syllable <laughs> words. <laughs> In one syllable. Bright. Nice. <laughs> Lovely. Well, here's one that will be right up your street. What's your favourite pasty filling? Oh, uh, traditional steak. Yes. Nice. Yeah. And if you could sit down and share that moment of eating the pasty with anybody from history, who would it be if what? I wouldn't share it, no. No, not that price. I'd have it for myself. But Barack Obama. Mm. Nice choice. Excellent. One more thing before mm. you go. Listeners will know that uh, we've had the fully scored fantasy band, the band manager 2023. It's almost full. And as, uh, as this is our Christmas episode, we're going to give you possibly the second greatest Christmas present you could ever receive, <laughs> which is an extra person to nominate. So we're going to ask you for three nominations for the fantasy band. Uh, Gary Rose who was a previous member of the ISB, who is now the bandmaster at Kettering. Fantastic euphonium player. Fantastic musician, I think is the best way to describe Gary. Michael Barrett, I have mentioned him before. Uh, I think he's probably the one, one of these players who has suffered with living so far away from London in years gone by that never featured in the ISB. Mm. Um, and I think there's a few players like that who could have been in it, but for the travel. And Mike Callan used to be in the band fantastic E-flat bass player. I remember sharing the journeys with Mike on the way out of ISB and um, he'd have his pad under his arm because he got a tuba at home and you just knew that any part that he couldn't play one week, he'd come back and play it the next week. A real role model. So there's my three. Fabulous. And the band is nearly full now, so we'll reveal what we're going to do to fill that band okay. shortly. Well, Gary, thank you so much. We thank will you, hear from you again shortly in Bandmastermind. 
Thanks, Gary, again for agreeing to chat with us and sharing some snippets of your journey, both musically and spiritually. Three great additions there to the fully scored Band Manager 2023 band. The joys of it being a fantasy band are that we can make some adaptations, so Mike Calland will be joining as our third E-flat bass player to make a section of three E-flats and one B-flat. Now, I'm pleased to announce that after many nominations and votes on our recent Facebook posts, I can announce our Flugelhorn and Bandmaster nominations for the Fantasy Band. The Flugelhorn seat goes to Robert Foster, long-standing Flugelhorn player of the ISB. His nomination cited his premiere of So Glad in 1982, elevating the instrument's place and part in Salvation Army repertoire, according to the current ISB Flugelhorn player, Richard Woodrow. The bandmaster's position was hotly contested. Honourable mentions must go to Steve Cobb and Howard Evans, but this year James Williams, MBE, is put forward to be the bandmaster of the band. The observant amongst you, all mathematically inclined, may have picked up that after Gary's three editions are two Facebook nominations, that leaves three spaces left in the band. We've decided to slightly indulge ourselves, it is Christmas after all, and the three members of the fully scored creative team have each given a nomination. First of all, we hear from Simon Gash with his nomination. My choice for first cornet in the fantasy band would be Andy Precious. I've had the privilege to play him in Bexleyth core band with Andy for the past 20 years or so. He's a fabulous musician and a wonderful cornet player. But he's also been and continues to be a real role model to me as a Christian, as a husband and as a parent. So Andy Precious for First Cornet. Thanks Simon, another great addition. Next, Andrew Blythe. Andrew, who are you putting into the fully scored fantasy band? My pick for solo horn for the fantasy band would be Tim Parker, who was in the ISB with me, a technically gifted horn player. Um, who could play the Faber horn concerto very well, which was transcribed by Michael Kenyon, uh, but very solid all the time and never let you down. Good sound and uh, played at a very high level. Thanks, Andrew. And to complete the band, my nomination for the percussion three-seat would have to be my granddad, Herbert Edwards. Percussionist and deputy bandmaster of Norwich Citadel Band for around half a century, but more significantly, my inspiration to become a musician and for the love for Salvation Army and orchestral music that I hold dear now. I have very fond memories growing up of us sitting together, listening to symphonies, overtures and tone poems whilst following along through the scores. My granddad was also my biggest encourager in so many ways and time spent looking through photos and hearing stories of his time in Norwich Citadel Band in many ways could be the subconscious inspiration behind the creation of this podcast. And with that, our fully scored Band Manager 2023 band is complete. We'll post the full team sheet on Facebook shortly, so let us know what you think. Now, it's time for our analysis of Morley Calvert's The Festive Season with Nick Simmons-Smith. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us on Fully Scored once again. It's great to see you. Great to be here. Thank you, Matthew. And it seems like a long while since we spoke to you in one of our live episodes. Luckily, this isn't quite as terrifying because we can edit it. (laughs) I love that. Thank you for that. 
and uh, this is our Christmas special of the year 2023 and we're going to be looking at a suitably festive piece of music, The Festive Season by Morley Calvert. So my first question for you is, where did you first come across this piece, if you can remember? Yeah, we played it in my core band, uh, Chelmsford Citadel Band, uh, under bandmaster Simon Schultz. And uh, I quite enjoyed it. I, I like the format of a suite and uh, it wasn't too difficult for a festival series piece. But uh, three carols that are, are pleasing to hear and fairly well known. So it would probably be uh, more than 20, 25 years ago that I played it. Amazing. And I have to say, personally, it's not a piece that I'm that familiar with, so I'm looking forward to finding out a little bit more about it. But having listened to some recordings, it's a very, very finely done piece of music. Sometimes Christmas music of this genre can be a little bit twee and cheesy, but it's very, very well done, I have to say, in, in my opinion. So we'll find out, I'm sure, why that is in a few moments. But let's talk about the composer, first of all. Morley Calvert. What can you tell us about Morley Calvert? Well, he's a Canadian, and uh, his output wasn't hugely prolific for the Salvation Army, but the pieces that he did write, I think, were, were good ones, were winners. If I think about My All Is On The Altar, that little gem that many of us will have played, uh, and even for our transgressions, that meditative study, uh, which is very emotional and full of drama, those are two great pieces. And I, I remember my first music school in East London Division, uh, with Clarence Adu and Ilive Herrickstad as the bandmasters, we played Canadian Folk Song Suite, which of course is Morley Calvert. And uh, I just think he has a great efficiency about his writing and his scoring. Uh, he passed away in 1991. He was a soldier and bandmaster and songster leader at Montreal Citadel. We'll recognise that core from the march. Uh, and he was there, very prolific in the 50s and 60s as a writer for the army. Uh, and published as late as 1985 with St Agnes. And this piece is written as a Christmas carol suite. There can't be many pieces that have that uh, subtitle to them, and it features three Christmas carols. Would you like to introduce the three carols that are in the piece? Yeah, we have uh, Christ Was Born on Christmas Day, which is a 17th century uh, carol, which I can't recall singing, uh, in a congregation, but certainly familiar with from records or playing in the, in the carol book. Uh, then you have the Hole in the Ivy, which I have to say, I don't like that carol. And I think it comes back to, in the carol book, Christmas Praise, the trombones just have the melody. They don't have anything of interest, just the boring melody. So I've never really enjoyed that carol, but it's well uh, treated in this piece. And then finally, we have Good King Wenceslas uh, to finish off, which I think is a great uh, carol. For me, so a good uh, suite of carols. The interesting thing about uh, suites, it's kind of a dying form, uh, really, in our journals. Um, Ken Downey recently did a Christmas suite in Triumph series, but it's been more than 20 years, I think, in general series um, to have a suite. But it was something that was very popular uh, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. I have a, a bandsman at my core, Dr. Ron Holtz, who I think is a contributor to this podcast, and he was telling me the first suite was Eric Ball's Songs of the Morning back in the late 30s. And I think it's a great format because you get to introduce uh, three different tunes, give them a small treatment, and it's very pleasing programmatically. I just think we've moved away from that because people tend to want a five to six minute splashy piece uh, rather than a nice uh, suite. It, and it makes me think of um, furniture, the front room, the three-piece suite uh, of furniture. It's the same thing musically. You get three tunes, and they're usually uh, hung together with a, a common thread. In this case, Christmas carols. <laughs> <laughs> 
The Holly and the Ivy, a Christmas duo, a comedy duo that nobody needs. There we go. <laughs> so, before we get on to that, uh, we should probably start with the first movement. As you said, the tune used is Christ Was Born on Christmas Day. Quite a mystical introduction here to the music. Well, what strikes me here is they trusted the percussion. And I think for many years we didn't in the Salvation Army. You know, it was sort of a bass drum, snare drum here. But you have a two-measure snare drum solo, which is a bit of a risk at Pianississimo, uh, which not many snare drummer players can do, actually. And then you get this beautiful uh, muted cornet uh, trio, uh, which is echoed beautifully in the trombones. Before we enter in what I would call a kind of pastoral feel to this carol, with a little ostinato in the the tubas and euphoniums and then the melody appearing again in trio form in the solo cornets. And then the music changes key at letter B. What can you tell us is of interest in that next section? Well, I, I do find it interesting that it changes key because it quickly changes back. And Morley Calvert, he has an efficiency about changing key. Sometimes in a measure, he will just pivot. And, and I think the reason it changes key, really, other than musical interest, is it, it allows the horns to play the melody at an appropriate pitch. Uh, so he's moved it up. Uh, a fourth here and allows them to play in their comfortable register to, to take the melody, which changes the texture of the piece. Again, there's some echoing uh, in the cornet section. And uh, I just love the way that he uses uh, mellows and brights. And this is a fairly common compositional technique for brass bands, but he does it very efficiently and very cleverly here in, in this opening carol. to see the scoring's much thicker is there anything that you can pull out of this uh, texture here that's of interest yeah you, you've got some classic lush calvert harmonies here and i'm a lover of harmony you know whenever you get those sort of jazzy chords or chromaticisms it's a bit like eric Lydson. uh you, you have this third treatment of the melody here so something has to change harmonically and he does that really well with the chromaticisms in in uh, bars uh, uh, five six seven uh, or so, but it is a much more confident approach to this carol. Christ was born on Christmas Day in the third iteration of it, but I do love his lush harmonies. And then you have the, the horns and the baritones kind of bring it to a screeching halt, and you get this sort of fermata or uh, pause, as you would say, uh, before letter D, and then a sort of softer approach to uh, the last verse here. And what I love about Calvert is he uses these flat sevenths. So you've got these accented chords that come in kind of uh, shockingly, really, in such a pastoral, pleasant piano setting. And they include a nice flattened seventh, which just makes it really juicy. And then it finishes kind of how it started with uh, a muted cornet, uh, this time being echoed uh, beautifully by the euphonium. So it's a delightful, elegant uh, opening section without getting too long. I mean, you get three verses... Uh, but it doesn't feel overly long. Uh, in terms of a suite, you don't want it to be too long. So I think he's done it with uh, 
you know, uh, excellent efficiency as Morley Calvert usually does. So that takes us on to the second movement, the meat inside the sweet, if you want to think of it in that way, <laughs> uh, the holly and the ivy. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's a, a good English carol. And uh, interestingly enough here in terms of a sweet, uh, it's not your traditional fast, slow, fast, as we might uh, have music played now. If you're doing three tunes, you would definitely have a slow second movement. This goes along at a fair clip, uh, 116 beats per minute, and you get a nice ostinato in the euphonium uh, with the baritone and then this pedal on the tuba. Uh, and then the flugelhorn. Why not give the melody to the flugelhorn? It's a beautiful solo instrument, uh, thinly scored, uh, some interjections from other horns uh, and a solo cornet, but just pleasantly presented very simply. Here is a technique that I think is underused in brass band writing, is unison. Uh, we tend to harmonize everything, uh, but here we have the trombones and cornets in unison at letter E, which I always think is delightful. And then it comes through with more chromatic harmony, as Calvert likes to use here in letter E. Um, you know, maybe that was of the era with those chromaticisms, but they're very pleasing to me. Then I love letter F, Matthew. I love it. Uh, if you look at the horn part, it's not the melody, it's a counter melody, but the flugelhorn and the horn section have these uh, parallel triads, actually on the, the second inversion here, and they just keep moving uh, with the melody in the bottom end of the band, the tubas, uh, euphonium and baritone, and it's eight measures of parallel triads, uh, which is really clever to my mind, and adds a lot of uh, interest in, in on top of the melody uh, and allows just the bottom end to express themselves there. Fabulous. What happens at letter G? Yeah, here we have uh, the chorus and uh, kind of starts more confidently uh, as it's fully scored, if, if, if you mind the pun. And, um, you know, at a reasonable uh, dynamic level before going down to pianissimo with an uncertain cadence on the uh, pause or the fermata um, with the menomoso there. And then on our tempo. And it's interesting here, we have some chromaticisms again from Morley Calvert and then an allegando, which strikes me as being kind of angry initially. Uh, with this uh, minor sounds in there. And then, beautifully, the last three measures of this movement, we introduce some modern jazz chords. And I love how he does this. Uh, we have the sixth here. Uh, that Actually, firstly, we have a major seventh chord, E-flat major seven, uh, which is beautifully scored, and then a major sixth chord to finish on. And, and I would say to composers, when you are uh, adding a purple note into a chord, a ninth, the sixth, uh, a major seventh, you don't need to heavily score it. 
So just one or two pots. I would say don't put too much sugar in your tea. Uh, and here we have just two players, the first baritone, the first horn, just adding that little bit of color to that chord, which perhaps would be modern sounding uh, for its time, I'm not sure. And then the last thing I'd say about this section, it finishes with a triangle tremolo. And I'm thinking if I wrote this piece now, which I would never get close to writing a piece of this quality, but I would put a triangle note at the end. I wouldn't do the tremolo, but I kind of like it. I think it's kind of cool. So you have these jazz chords after this angry conclusion and then a little tremolo on the triangle to let us know it's all done and dusted. don't ever put any sugar in your tea sacrilege <laughs> well i'm a coffee drinker i don't drink tea but uh, if i did i'd have a, i'd have a couple of sugars in there oh dear me cuts me to the bone <laughs> <laughs> talking about to the bone i'm sure a, a chill to the bone was felt by good king wenceslas as he wandered through the streets of bohemia modern day prague and it wouldn't be a christmas piece would it without the use of sleigh bells i would Probably hazard a guess this is maybe one of the first pieces published in the Salvation Army with sleigh bells. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, and, uh, you know, they appear, of course, in Christmas Joy with Lydston, which would have been a bit later, I would think. But, yeah, I, I wouldn't know of a piece before this that had sleigh bells. And it reminds me of kind of, uh, I don't know, Rimsky-Korsakov or Prokofiev's Troika. Uh, and you get these fifths in the tuba with this kind of ostinato. It's sort of, you know, driving forward through the snow, if you like, through Prague, as you say. But nicely scored uh, in this section, uh, euphoniums with the melody, and then the baritones, first and second, in unison, harmonising. So the simplicity of sometimes just having three parts, tuba part in fifths, a melody, and then just a harmony part, maybe in thirds or sixths, uh, to highlight that. Some interjections from other places, but generally that's what you have in a whole section. And sometimes, you know, uh, in scoring, less is more, and I think he's done a great job here uh, through the start of this carol. <laughs> Excellent. And at letter H, the music shifts up a notch. We change key once again. Is this one of those efficient key changes you were talking about earlier? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he gives us about a quaver of key change, which is all he needs, and just sets it up. And I think it heightens the drama. You have accent, shock notes, suddenly down to piano with slurred notes. You have staccato descending quavers, and then you have slurred ascending quavers that are not chromatic, that are more traditional in their harmony. So he loves changing the texture, you know, uh, harsh and loud and staccato and chromatic. And then in the very next bar, you have smooth, quiet, more traditional harmony. So this is a, a section of transition for sure. Uh, but there is plenty of drama in there and plenty of uh, Calvertisms, if I can say that, about Morley's uh, style and his music. <laughs> Thank you. 
again, we have some reference to these shot notes and shot chords at letter I. What else can we see in this section leading us into J? Yeah, this is really four measures of transition, and he's setting up a key change, and he's doing it over four measures. So he's, he's uh, spreading his wealth on this key change, which I just think is great. It, it adds to excitement. Uh, you know, you can feel it building with the accents, uh, and I'm sure, even though it's marked forte, you have a little crescendo at the end, but I can hear a lot of bands just pushing that crescendo through all four measures as the excitement builds. And then you get this grandioso moment at J, where it's a little bit slower, and you've got to be careful that the bass trombone doesn't overpower everybody. And one thing that, frankly, I missed when I played this, Matthew, it was the flugelhorn and first cornet have decked the halls with boughs of holly for four, four bars. And I had never really heard that. I had definitely heard uh, Joy to the World in the Euphoniums, which comes just a couple of measures later, uh, in the kind of the same way that in the end of Joy and Bethlehem, Les Condom, he starts putting all these tunes in right at the end. It's sort of a roller coaster as you're going towards the end of the piece. And then he kind of withdraws again to this uh, 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 Russian kind of uh, sounding ostinato again, a little bit softer, using again those flattened sevenths, which I love. Juicy little chord there. Uh, adds a little bit of drama. Big crescendo, big moment, pulls it all the way back, big finish. You get the statement, good King Wenceslas last looked out from the horns at Fortissimo, Marcato. And then what do you get in the last three bars? You get jingle all the way. How many times, how many pieces have we heard jingle all the way in the last uh, measure or bars of a piece of music? And Morley Calvert's done it in the festival series. Maybe he was the first and everyone else followed. But it's classic and I love the way he does it. And it ends with, uh, you know, just a nice solid chord at the end. And I just think that this is not overextended. Uh, we're not putting the kitchen sink into this composition. But it is well put together. And I would go as far as to say not a measure wasted. Or a bar. Not a bar wasted in this piece of music. Uh, it's pretty efficient, and I think that's kind of the hallmark of, of Morley Calvert's music, really, that he was able to do that. Um, and it's a lovely suite. I think it's very effective. It's fun. And I'll, I'll go back to uh, Les Condon's um, uh, program uh, notes, or score notes, I should say. This is what he says about this piece. He says, uh, Christmas uh, music is often required to contain high musical quality, but an absence of intricate technicalities. And I presume he says that because there's not much rehearsal time before Christmas. So you want something that sounds good, but you haven't got a lot of time to, you know, uh, learn the notes, etc. And Condon says that the festive season meets both these needs. So uh, high musical quality, but it doesn't have all the intricate technicalities that another festival series piece might have. But I think overall, it's a really effective addition to the Christmas repertoire. The only three-piece suite you need this Christmas. 
Thank you, Nick, for divulging and uh, looking at that piece of music. Really a great piece of music there. Just before we do finish and wrap up, uh, or in the opposite of presents on Christmas Day, uh, have you got a favourite performance or favourite recording that you've heard of the work? Well, I mean, I enjoyed playing it with my core band. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I've listened to one or two uh, recordings which are older and sometimes older recordings have a great quality about them and sometimes they sound a little bit rough. Uh, so I, I prefer to think of it when I was playing in my core band in England and it was cold. It wasn't like Atlanta where it's hot in the, in the winter. It was cold and I was getting excited. I'm one of those people that loves the anticipation of Christmas. I can't wait, you know, to enjoy the build up. Christmas day is fine. It's lovely, but I really enjoy the excitement of being cold and Carol playing around the streets. And I think there was probably a performance of my core band where we really nailed it and I enjoyed my part on, on first trombone. So I'm going to keep that one in my memory if I can. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that. Indeed. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us once again on Fully Scored. And hopefully it's not the last time, but thank you for giving up your time. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you again, Nick, for your time and expertise. A terrific analysis of an equally terrific piece in our repertoire. Now, hop on board the steam-powered icebreaker ship as we set sail for Arid Island. Land ahoy! Welcome to Arid Island. Today's guest is Matthew Miles. Well, welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us on Arid Island. How are you keeping? Really good, really good. Busy time of year, you know, things building up towards Christmas and things like that, but uh, really good, thank you. Great. Now, as some may know, you're bandmaster of Bromley Temple Band, and I believe you've got an exciting trip coming up soon to take part in the Rose Bowl Parade. We have. Um, yeah, it's been a bit of a long time coming, this one, um, because we were originally due to be going 2020-21, uh, and we all know what happened then. Um, so uh, the actual Rose Parade didn't happen that year, but um, thankfully we've had an invitation to go this year. Um, so band have been working hard. We've been uh, doing lots of uh, preparations, including some marching practice. Um, I think we forget some, you know, sometimes not many bands do marching these days. We've had a couple that uh, certainly haven't done that before. So um, we were out uh, the other Saturday morning, uh, it started off wet, thankfully it dried up, but um, some uh, marching practice, which was put to good use for Remembrance Sunday the following week, and uh, the next time we march we'll be down uh, Main Street in Disneyland in LA. Hopefully it won't be raining on the other side of the Atlantic. Let's hope that it's not. <laughs> How many of the band are going on the trip? We've got uh, 34 of us going, uh, but we're actually uh, seconding three of our players back to the band. So we've got three uh, of our former members who uh, have either recently or previously moved to the area. So two members who moved back to San Francisco in the last six months rejoining us and uh, one of our more long-standing members uh, who's been in the area for a few years is going to join us as well on Cornet. So... Good, good number there. Fantastic. Now, of course, your role as bandmaster isn't a full-time one. If only. So can you tell us a little bit about what you get up to? What's your day job? 
Uh, I'm a solicitor, uh, corporate uh, solicitor, so dealing with uh, mostly buying, selling businesses, helping people with that. Um, so, um, yeah, very different uh, to what I do on a Tuesday evening. Brilliant. Now for the all-important question. If you were stuck on an arid island and could take only one album with you, what would that album be and why? Well, I think... Um, as, as a lot of people have commented uh, in previous episodes, it's a, it's a tough choice, this one. Um, and I think actually, uh, in fact, some of the recent episodes, uh, some people have, have come across uh, some of those CDs that maybe I would have thought about. Um, but um, And uh, last few weeks, been looking through those Christmas CDs as well. So um, I think, you know, whether we're going to be there for the Christmas period. Um, yeah, there's albums like the Sovereign Brass uh, Christmas album. That's an iconic one, isn't it? I think uh, for those army musicians, those arrangements, you've got, you know, kicks off with the sweet chiming Christmas bells. Uh, God rest you merry gentlemen, which was incredibly different then when it first appeared. And then that very smooth arrangement of chestnuts. Um, there's the Spiritual of the Bone, that Christmas album. Or the YBS Simple Gifts um, that one's about 20 years old now, but, um, you know, Gaudete, uh, lovely arrangement, uh, Flugel Solo, Away in a Manger, um, and Christmas Festival, Shining Star, those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, if, if coming the Christmas period, it'd be one of those. Um, I think over the last year, one CD that I've worn out um, has been the New York Staff Band, uh, CD Worship the King, um, which followed hot on the... Uh, trail of their UK visit. Um, I've been playing that out mostly because uh, there's a couple of numbers on there that we'll hopefully be featuring on our trip to LA. Um, but um, I think my choice would actually be something slightly different to, to, to perhaps uh, some people would expect. Um, and some might not have even heard of actually. Uh, it's a cracking CD and uh, one that's played with real excitement and quality as well. Um, that's CD, that's about 10 years old now. Uh, North York Temple Bands CD everywhere. Um, I came across the band when they came across to the UK on their 2013, I think it was, UK tour. Um, and it was just so exciting and different, I think, the music that they were playing at the time. Um, so you know, the, the, the CD starts off with that March Abundance. Um, you've got a lovely meditation in there, Now I Belong. Um, Stephen Ponsford's Now I Belong. And then the main work, Everywhere, which of course uses uh, Andrew Maycock's reworking of John Gowan's song, um, which reminds us uh, that we can't hide from God's love. His love is everywhere. Um, and that was a CD I, you know, like, like I've done with the New York staff uh, CD now, played out a lot at the time and uh, really sort of uh, clung to during the COVID time as well. So, um, yeah, the, some of the, the, the words behind the music there really spoke to me during that time. So I think for me, that would be the uh, choice that I would take with me, which would be North York Temple Bands everywhere. Thanks, Matthew. A great choice of album, and we pray that you'll have a phenomenal trip to California along with the rest of Bromley Temple Band. Thank you. Don't forget the sunscreen, although, actually, the Pasadena weather will probably feel much colder than the weather on Arid Island. Thanks again, Matthew, for your time. To wrap up this episode in festive wrapping paper, we head to the Bandmaster Mine hot seat for a seasonal variation on the much-loved and ever-feared segment, Bandmaster Mind.
Well, Gary, welcome back. And uh, you are now sitting in the Band Mastermind festive hot seat. Mm, thank you. Similar to the normal hot seat, but it's got some baubles <laughs> on it. So. You will have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many of these festive Band Mastermind questions as possible. If you don't know, uh, you can always say pass. But Gary Fountain, are you ready to play Bandmastermind Festive Edition? I am. Fabulous. Reluctantly. <laughs> Your time, reluctantly, starts now. <laughs> what was the first carol in New Christmas Praise? Hark the Herald. Incorrect, I'm afraid. Who wrote The Shepherd's Farewell? Bizet. Incorrect, but you didn't write letter you started with. Berlioz. Uh, Berlioz, yeah, I'll give you that one. You got it there. <laughs> How many tunes are included in New Christmas Praise? 120. Oh, it's close, but not quite. True or false? The Holly in the Ivy is number 82 in the Christmas collection. False. Correct. Who wrote the melody for Hark the Herald? Don't know. No, no worries. We'll Pass. come back to the answers. Uh, what was the last piece of Christmas music to be published in the festival series? Pass. Okay. Talking in concert pitch, what key is Okamo Ye Faithful written in in the Christmas collection? C. Incorrect, I'm afraid. Who wrote the melody, Joy to the World? No. No, that's okay, we'll move on. What is the alternative name given in New Christmas Praise for the worldwide Christmas message? Pass. Okay. Can you name one of the two Richard Phillips arrangements found in the back of the Christmas collection book? Who is he? That's not in the book, I'm afraid, but it is one of Richard Phillips. Oh. Uh, how many pieces are there in the Sounds of Christmas books? Pass. Okay, and we've got time just to get in the last question as the timer goes off. What's the name of the USA East published carol book? Pass. <laughs> That's okay. Well, stop laughing, Matthew. <laughs> you do have the answers in front of you. I do, you, so I do. Stop yeah, laughing. It's easy for me. <laughs> I'll just toss up your school. <laughs> I can do that if you want. <laughs> I can't remember that. One, two. 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 Which isn't a bad score for that mastermind. <laughs> so I'll just go through the questions and you can quietly kick yourself under the table for any that you didn't get. The first carol in the new Christmas praise books is A Child This. Day is Born. Um, you correctly got it. It was Berlioz that wrote The Shepherd's Farewell. Uh, there were 115 oh. tunes in New Christmas Praise. Not many out. Uh, you correctly answered False. Holly in the Ivy is number 87 in Christmas yeah. Collection. It was Mendelssohn that wrote Heart oh. Herald. And I the should last. know this, Matthew, shouldn't I? Well, you I'm do now. I'm looking a bit of an idiot. Now, aren't I? <laughs> okay. No more than usual. <laughs> <laughs> um, the last piece of Christmas music published in the festival series was A Great and Mighty Wonder, Ken Downing. Um, o Coming, You Faithful is in concert A flat major. Oh, okay. Joy to the World, the melody is written by Handel. And the alternative name for the, uh, the worldwide Christmas message is The Snow Waltz. Um, and the two Christmas arrangements by Richard Phillips that can be found at the back of Christmas collection are Midwinter or Yuletide yes. Rag. There are 36 oh, pieces in Sounds of Christmas. And the USA East published carol book is called Carolers' Favourites. So there you go. You know them all now. Can we edit anything? Uh, not this bit. <laughs> oh, no. Richard, I really have me. Because actually that um, arrangement of um, Your Time Rag's good and Bleak Me Wind is yeah. good, isn't it? Very good. Quite, quite popular, yeah. isn't it? Under the pressure of Bandmaster Monday, things just escape you, Mark. <laughs> it's the way. <laughs>
Once again, thank you so much, Gary, for joining us. That brings this episode, and indeed this season, to its close. But don't worry, we'll be back in January to start off our fifth season, and we'll be kicking off in style for our 50th episode. A few thanks. Thank you to our terrific guests, Gary, Nick and Matthew, for giving up your time. Thank you to our producer, Simon Gash, for assembling this episode like a well-put-together gingerbread house. Thank you to Whatplay for hosting this episode and a suitably festive playlist alongside it. And finally, ho ho, who else could I thank except from you, our listener? Hope you have a wonderful, warm and safe Christmas time. We'll see you in 2024 for Season 5. Goodbye and God bless. (laughs) 